Good morning, everybody. I used to play this game with my children. You know, what's, what, what's these? Shoulders, yeah. What's this? What are these? Knees. Um, what's that? What are these? Ears. I'm glad you noticed that these are ears because this is exactly what this passage says. It says, anyone who has ears, let him hear. And so I think if you recognize what ears are and you have them on your head, no matter the, uh, how much space between them is filled, you know, whether it's small or large, it doesn't matter. It says, if you have ears, hear. It would help if my Bible was the right way up. So not only hear, but yeah, have your Bibles to you, uh, open. So we're looking at Revelation 2. This is the third church, or the third letter in the, uh, the book of Revelation uh, that we've been uh, covering so far. And it's to Pergamum. But just before we just delve in to see what the letter says to Pergamum, remember what uh, Revelation is for. John received a revelation of Jesus Christ, and he saw the heavenlies open, and he knew what was going to happen with his church, he knew what was happening with his church, and he knew what was going to happen in the future, you see. And it was written for those to have confidence in, uh, in the times of persecution and suffering, to maintain a faithful walk with Christ until he comes again as the victorious king. So that's, that's, the, that's the overall thrust of the, of, the letter, uh, of the letter of Revelation, or the book of Revelation, I should say. It's to prepare the bride for his coming. That's what he's doing. The bride, his church, he cares and loves it. He died for it. And we need to keep that in the backs of our minds. And at the very end, in, verse, in chapter 21, we, we hear that God will come and reside with men. He will dwell where we are. That's the end goal. That's why Christ died, that we can be with God. And moreover, God dwells with us. And so we find this letter to Pergamum. Same pattern as the rest. You'll, you'll always notice it's to the angel of the church wherever. Write this. We get a character trait of Christ, which we've been presented with in chapter 1. Then we have the commendation of Christ to the church to say, well done, well, by and large. And then we get the rebuke. He says that he has something, some issue with them. And then he gives them a promise, something to hope for. And uh, Pergamum's letter is no different to this. But how then, therefore, is Jesus introduced to the angel of Pergamum? Right. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. This is how Jesus is introduced to Pergamum. I don't know about you, but what if you received a letter from someone and it says, this is the words of someone who, is, who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I wouldn't think this is necessarily going to be from my best friend. There's something ominous about that, isn't there? Well, Jesus is introduced as a saviour who is weaponized. You know, we're introduced to the possibility that there may be some serious surgery going to happen. And so we see what the sword is. It says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. If we turn back to chapter 1, if you have a look there, we'll see what that sword is. And it's a sword, double-edged sword, which is coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, representing the word of truth. 
So it begs the question, doesn't it, really, what our attitude towards God's word is. You know, the words that we have in front of us here. I don't think, for many of us, that we actually regard it as a dangerous weapon. Perhaps something which comforts us, gives us hope. But a double-edged sword... You know, I'm not saying that the, the Bible doesn't have the soothing balm, as it were, to, to bind up wounds. But the fact is, it is God's word, and it is a double-edged sword. Serious surgery. Exposing wounds. Well, Luke, in chapter 2, writes this. about G- When Jesus uh, was coming into this world, it says this in verse, uh, verse 34 of chapter 2. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Did she die by the sword? It wasn't referring to that. It's that word of truth. And then in Hebrews as well, many would know this passage from chapter 4. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's the effects of a double-edged sword. And later on in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And later on in the chapter it says, The two of them were then thrown uh, uh, thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. This is the one writing to Pergamum. If you received a letter with all that imagery behind you, would you be a little bit nervous? You see, this word that we have before us kills. It divides bone and marrow. It exposes us. It divides us. We have a sword-wielding saviour. And that sword is the word of God. How does that make you feel? And it's double-edged as well. It's not that he comes and he will strike you with this sword one way. But again, you you will not escape when he reverses his thrust. Double-edged, it will get everywhere. It's a swift attack. I'm not a swordsman, but I know that a single blade is harder, um, harder or slower to fight than if you have two edges. You see, in all the letters, Jesus 
knows the issues of that particular church. But he knows the remedy too. And so we must think that therefore the remedy has something to do with this sword. Well, he knows their issues, he knows the remedy, but he also knows then in Pergamum where they are. Have a look in verse 13. He says, I know where you live. Well, that's lovely. However, he describes where they live is where Satan has his throne. Well, just so that we know where they live too, so we understand this letter better. Um, can you just put it on a slide, please? Is it frozen? Okay, whilst Alan's busy on that. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll tell by your eyes whether it's come up or not. Pergamum. The third... Ch- Oi, hey. <laughs> Stop playing with me, Alan. There we go. Okay. We have the third church, as we've said. We've been to Ephesus. We've been to Smyrna. And now we've gone uh, due north to Pergamum, which lies about 16 kilometers in from the coast. And at the time of writing this letter, it had become an extremely important city to the Roman um, Empire. See, its location was ideal. It was ideal to be the administrative centre for the whole province of um, Asia, which, if I point out, would be all of this going on this way to here. It was an extremely important city. This is modern-day Turkey, somewhere like that. There's Greece over that side and, and Bulgaria. If you've been to Bulgaria, that might help, but if not, that doesn't help. But it's the administrative centre of of Asia for the Roman Empire. You see, rules and laws made there affected all of that area there. All people. It was governed by the Roman Empire, you see. Although it wasn't as prosperous as Smyrna and Ephesus because it wasn't located on the coast and it didn't have the important port and trade routes, but it was by far the most famous city in the area. Because not only was it a political centre... It was a centre of huge cultural significance, too, for the whole of the region. You see, it had a necropolis to rival Athens. And if you know anything of Athens, you can start to think, well, hang on, Pergamon might be quite important if it had a necropolis to rival there. It had a huge library, nearly rivalling that of Alexandria, the greatest education centre of the day. You know, in those days, education was greatly prized. Learning was greatly prized. And to boast that my library is bigger than yours was to say, look at our city, how important are we? We are the leaders, we are the influencers, we are the trendsetters. You see, in the same way that um, crazy outlandish designs on on the catwalk in Paris will somehow filter their way through and permeate into the high streets of Cheltenham and Gloucester where you start to wear them. I may not wear them, but some, some of you might do. In the same way, abstract blue sky thinking from these centres of excellence and education filters it through uh, into the common man, to the places, the towns and cities and villages of the area. And this is where Satan dwells. This is where Satan's throne is. It's a disturbing thought, isn't it? An influential city 
setting the pace and climate of the day is also the residence of the enemy of God. It makes us think then, therefore, shouldn't we be praying so much more so for those places in our day which have um, great influence? We pray that Satan would not set up shop there and that it would be a center for good and not evil. See, on the surface, it was a beautiful city. But just scratch that surface a little, and you, you will see that Pergamum is an extremely dark and foul place to live. You see, it didn't end there, though. Its cultural influence embraced religion, too. The people of Pergamum were known as the temple keepers of Asia. You know, temples were the, being core to worship, wasn't it, of their gods. Whoever kept the temples, once again, had huge influence. They were the channel through which people came and worshipped and sacrificed to their gods. And Pergamum wasn't short of those temples either. It had temples to Athena, to Zeus. It, was a, it had a center of healing. It was a, it's called an Asclepium, I, I, I discovered. And it basically, it's a spa on steroids. It was... If you went to Bath Spa and they, and they gave you a bit of a sedative to drink and you had to lie down overnight and then uh, be covered in snakes, well then you're starting to get somewhere near what was happening there. It was a crazy place. But more so, that there were three temples for the worship of the Emperor of Rome. A guy, just a normal man, you, uh, you and I, sat on the throne over the Roman Empire but it had to be worshipped as divine. And actually, in Pergamon, it had the first ever temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor. And just to give you an idea of the pressure that faced the church in Pergamon, there was a governor of Pl- uh, governor Pliny, which was uh, governor of a Bi- um, Bithynia, a neighbouring province. It's recorded as saying this concerning investigating Christians. I asked them whether they were Christians, and I asked them a second time and a third time with threats of punishment. If they kept to it, I ordered them, take, uh, ordered them taken off for execution. For I had no doubt that whatever it was they admitted, in any case, they deserved to be punished for obstinacy and unbending pertinacity. As for those who said they were neither uh, were nor ever been Christians, I thought it right to let them go when they recited a prayer to the gods at my dictation and made supplication with incense and wine to your statue and moreover cursed Christ. Things, so it is said, those who are really Christians cannot be made to do. Huge pressure on this church. And if we feel that Pergamum is a million miles away from where we are in terms of uh, a cultural climate, then I suppose we should try and think again about that. Uh, I'm not suggesting that Abidal is the, uh, the cultural or contemporary equivalent of the throne of Satan. But surely we, we can perhaps see some toned down, some muted similarities today. How we are derided, evenly violently set against because we don't shift our beliefs when the calls from those who are ignorant of the Christian faith are for us to adopt the cultural norms the socially accepted things which are right. 
And we can see this, can't we, in the debate over the redefinition of marriage. We become known as bigots, accused of living in cuckoo land, or back in a well-forgotten past. Those who stand firm will always be objects of attack. You know, we are encouraged to compromise our beliefs by bowing down and, and showing allegiance to the ultimate authority, the law of the land. You know, Christianity today is seen by some as having some positive influence in society. They do good things in terms of social activity. But in no way are Christians to feel at liberty to appeal and abide by higher laws. If there is any conflict, then it is expected that the law of the land should take precedent over God's laws. That's what we're called to do, and sometimes that can put us in really difficult situations. When we think of all that was going on in Pergamum, all the pressures, we can see why Pergamum described as Satan's throne. The way it influences what is going on in the, in the melting pot of, in terms of worship and religion. See, Satan's throne. I think the original word had, had uh, something to do with his own residence. And so we have Satan here at home, comfortable, because he was ruling from a place of strategic influence. He was loving it. And yet, the good word is that the Savior knows where they dwell. He knows that the thick darkness of the thick darkness that surrounds them and the pressures that they face, he is not unknown to their suffering and persecution. He knows, therefore, where we live too. He knows our circumstances. He knows who stand um, against us and for us. And he himself stands amongst us. And he wants us to learn and know that he is here. And what it means, and what it means to be a church now and in the future. And so he's given Pergamum a model from which we can learn from. And although it's, it's, when we look at uh, Pergamum, it's like living in extreme circumstances, though we may not, we're able to see Pergamum more clear, in, in Pergamum more clearly what the expectations of Christ's church is. Well, just to, then, just to sum up that part, is to be on guard for the two-pronged attack of Satan. It's been said... The world's attentions are more deadly to the Christian than its antagonisms. And it's against these that we must be especially on our guard. You see, Ephesus had to withstand false teachers, and they did that well. They were commended for that. And Smyrna against physical persecution. But Pergamum is facing both. So my first point to note down is that Jesus commends the faithful witness. Jesus commends the faithful witness. Have a look at verse 13. Halfway through it says, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in, this, in your city where Satan lives. It's all too quickly, isn't it, to, to skip those parts in these letters and get to the bits which they're failing at and have a little bit of a moan and, and be negative. But there's points of praise uh, uh, for these churches. Despite where they dwell, we see the gravity and the extremes that they were in. 
yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the midst of persecution. So they did not deny Jesus' name. But what does that mean? Well, if we think what, what a name represented then is, it was his whole character, who he was. They did not deny that Jesus Christ was Lord. They didn't j- deny that Jesus Christ was Saviour. They didn't deny that Jesus Christ is God, as Creator. Everything that they knew of Jesus, they did not deny. They held fast to the truth of who Jesus was. And because of that, they didn't renounce the faith that they have in him. That faith which gives us the personal relation to who they are claiming to know. They said that Jesus with Christ was Lord. They're saying Jesus Christ is my Lord. It's a church that says, yes, Jesus is Lord. He is Saviour. And they're willing to testify to Jesus, even to the point of death. Just like Antipas, that faithful witness. Pergamon Church was able to resist direct attack. Can't get more direct than, uh, than martyrdom. But they'd left themselves wide open for the more insidious, the more subtle schemes of Satan, you see. The second point, therefore, being be vigilant. Be vigilant against the slippery slope of compromise and tolerance. Be vigilant against the slippery slope of compromise and tolerance. As we look at, uh, looking at through verses 14 and 15. It's also been said that love is the soul of the gospel. But right is its conscience and ruler. Love is the soul of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. But right is its conscience and ruler. Therefore I will do as he asks. You know, in spite of the church being found in, in the midst of a very powerful enemy, it displayed outstanding witness and faithfulness. Yet despite this com, uh, commendation, they were not everything that they were required to be. And I don't know about you, but it seems a little bit harsh. If I came from a church where people were willing to die for their faith, and then to come, uh, come against a letter which says, and yet you still need to do more, might be a little bit hard to bear. But what is clear is that their, se- their zeal in testifying to the Lord is not, is not enough to make it the church. A church is more to be than just a witness. The church is to be that bride of Christ. And it should always be preparing for the, uh, for the groom's return. Keeping pure and holy. And at the end of the day, let's face it, that's how it's going to witness to the world, by being pure and holy. However, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's a group, there were some in that church, who were holding to the teaching of Balaam. And before we join in booing that group, you might say, well, who is that? What, what is Balaam? Who, you know, what is his teaching? Why is it so bad? But if I was going to give you a picture, it's like a, 
there would be a mole on your skin which you come back from holiday and it's grown a little bit bigger. But you have, you know, it might be a beauty spot now. But you just leave it and it grows and it festers and you do not heed the warning to go and get it checked and seen by the doctor. See, the teaching of Balaam, if you, if you know anything of your Old Testament, you remember that uh, Israel was in the wilderness after being promised to be taken to the uh, promised land, after being rescued from Egypt. Well, in Numbers 22 and 25, you'll find this story of Balaam and Balak. Well, Balak was a king of Moab. He was the king of the Moabites, and he saw Israel coming, and he was scared. Israel had been seen to be starting uh, pressing their advantage over all the surrounding uh, tribes and nations. And he feared for his own kingdom next. And so he tries to get the prophet Balaam to curse Israel three times. So he may not have to face the, the onslaught of the, the marching on of Israel. But he was unable to do it. God wouldn't allow it. And it ended from being cursing to blessing Israel. So what was Balak to do against Israel who were coming against them? Well, Balaam, it says, taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. You see, instead of going in and conquering the Moabites, the men of Israel just went in and slept with the women. Israel, that pure holy nation, had just been decimated by interbreeding. They had become an impure nation now. And so the, the idea is, if you can't break them, let's woo them. That's what they'll do. You know, custard has two, two states. If you smack, smack a bowl of custard, you won't be able to put, you know, your hand won't go through it. But if you gently put your hand through a bowl of custard... It will go. So if, you're, if your approach is more subtle and under, uh, uh, you know, around the doors, being a little bit more insidious, well then, that may be where to come through. That is the two-pronged attacks of Satan. The smack and, and the, uh, the more subtle approach. See, the world's attentions, the world's attentions, are more deadly to the Christian than its antagonisms. And the result is impurity. That's what happens. And it's a slippery slope. One small compromise here will lead to a greater com compromise down the line. And so as a, as a leader, I need to be more vigilant. And as you, as, a, as the rest of the believers are here at Abbey, as a whole we should be vigilant too. What may seem trivial issue may turn out to be the thin end of the wedge. You know, temptations and compromise of Pergamum was worldliness. Joining in the practices that deny the one true living God. To submit to the temptations, to sexual desires. And to, to condone or, or tolerate that in our church or in the church there. Was to condone it and excuse it and to lay yourself open. The warning is against those who persuade and say that sin is okay. You know, they might not put it in terms of that, but when they offered the Moabite women, it was, take them, they're lovely. They're okay. They'll reason that temptation is okay. Those who hold on to the teaching of Balaam today and the Nicolaitans, though they wouldn't go by that name, they might be 
accused of the same problems. You see, they'll use values of the world to convince that certain practices are good. They'll pick out parts of the Bible to soothe your conscience, such as, if it feels good, then it must be right. It's okay. Jesus' sacrifice has covered all sin. What harm can it do? Repent later. If Christ has set you free, then you are free indeed. Free to do what you want. And this is a good one, isn't it? God is love. Wouldn't a loving God want you to be happy? It's just the Moabites putting stumbling blocks in front of the people of God. Hasn't this sort of attitude and approach weakened uh, the church in our nation, across the denominations? You see, many wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the church and a charity. See, the words of Christ to Pergamum hang ominously over our churches. And they've weakened our own personal faith too, isn't it? Just transgress this once. Repent afterwards. That's what your faith is about, isn't it? Repentance. You know that you have a saviour to go to. It is easy, so easy to give in to temptation and to reason and rationalise it away. Whatever it is you are doing that you are condoning, stop condoning it. Recognise it for what it is and remove it. If you condone your own sin, then you're sure to condone the sin of others. See, we're not to avoid correcting and rebuking one another. It's the prescription of a doctor who wants us to avoid major, major sword-wielding surgery. Yet if we are condoning sin in our own lives, we are less likely to deal with others who support it. You either feel it would be, you'd be a hypocrite in approaching somebody else, in challenging them, or you might even feel that you'll be losing support for your own sin. You can't still say to yourself that if they're doing it, so can I. Be vigilant against the slippery slope of compromise and tolerance. You see, Satan is fearful of the church, fearful of Christ's church, because it stands firm on the Saviour, is empowered by the Saviour's Spirit. And in very much the same way as Balak adopted subversive means to weaken and remove the threat of Israel, when the direct attack through Balaam, uh, Balaam failed, Satan would seek to remove the threat of this church by neutralizing it, making it ineffective through uniting it with the world. That's how he will do it. Subtle. Beware of the stumbling blocks. Better still, remove the stumbling blocks from our midst. Christ's response is, therefore, to the church. Therefore, Repent. Paul briefly asked us what repent was. It was not a matter of saying sorry. It was a matter of saying sorry, let's do something about it. And this is why he asked the whole church. So it's not just the leadership. Don't look just to the leadership to do this. This is the whole church's responsibility. We are not to look around and turn a blind eye to the worldliness in this church. Because we're just as responsible as the next person. See, Remember the, uh, Daniel, he preserved his integrity amid, um, amid the corruption of the court of Babylon. Had Nehemiah as well maintained his piety, didn't he, in the palace of the Persian emperor. 
Well, although Satan's throne is most likely not in Gloucester, shouldn't the letter of Pergamum shake us out of complacency? If a church where its members are willing to die for Christ and yet allow themselves to be compromised in such a way that it, fa- it threatens the actual fabric of the church itself, how easy is it, therefore, for us to allow such compromise, such worldliness to creep in? For our discipline in preparing for the return of Christ to be a pure bride, just to be relaxed to the point where we need direct surgical intervention by Jesus. Well, we've considered briefly at the beginning, didn't we, what it means for Christ to wield the sword of his mouth. And this is his promise. Anyone who's undergone major surgery will know, well aware of the effects of the surgeon's knife. Pain, discomfort, rehabilitation, healing. Some may not even make, make it through the operation. Many would say that they wish, they just wish they had followed the doctor's advice, which would have prevented from such drastic intervention. But Christ will deal with us where we fail. It is his church, not ours. We are not members of the club. We are members of Christ's body. He commended them for, his, uh, for holding fast to his name. What happens here at Abbey happens, happens to Jesus Christ. And he'll do this soon. The urgency of the situation. He says, sort it out. Otherwise I'm coming soon. I'm not going to let it carry on. This is far too important. I have died for this church. I love this church. I love the people in it. To stand by and not come would be wrong. I'm going to be coming soon if you do not deal with corruption in the church. But the the promise at the end is wonderful. The promise for the overcomers, those who are victorious in Jesus Christ. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Those who overcome. Jesus Christ is the one who is victorious. The one who is victorious amongst us is those who find themselves in Jesus Christ when he comes again. Those who have committed their lives to overcoming the corruption who have fought the fight for Jesus Christ in this church. And he says, to the one who is victorious, to the one who stands for Christ, he says, I will give some hidden manna. As they were in the desert, and they were given manna for sustenance, to feed them, so we are given the hidden manna. We are given the sustenance of the Holy Spirit. We are given the support and strength of the Spirit of Christ. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. There are quite a few um, opinions of what this white stone is. But most likely it's the one where they used to, um, when they were judging a a ruling, they would either throw a white stone or a black stone in the middle to say whether they're guilty or innocent. The white stone was innocent. And it says it has a new name on it. And that name would be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ name on it is given to us that we are declared innocent in him. It says, and it's known only to the one who receives it. Now it's not a hidden mystery, but to know of something is one thing, but to really know it is another. You need to hold on to Jesus Christ. You need to 
trust wholeheartedly in him to actually know and understand what it really means to have that hidden manner, to be saved, to be found in Jesus Christ, to be a conqueror and a victor, and a victor in him. And so, we should be witnesses as a church, but we should be careful as well, just as he advised Pergamum. We are not to compromise. We are not to be tolerant of sin. We are not to entertain the idea that sin is good in any way, shape or form. Otherwise, Jesus promises that he will come. He will wage war, he says, against those who do such things. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is sharper than any double-edged sword. Dear God, the picture that we see there is, is quite scary. However, Lord, we know that we are safe in you if we trust in you to be our Savior and Lord and that we follow you obediently. Lord, we thank you, though, that you do hold that sword which cuts through soul and flesh to expose the parts which have become rotten. We pray that you will be gentle with us, Heavenly Father, but not deny us the surgery that we do need. Heavenly Father, remove from us things which are rotten and heal us with that very same word, that we may be a church who are preparing to be that bride when Jesus Christ returns, that we may be looking forward to the hope of heaven and not the rebuke of your, your son. Lord, help us as a church not to compromise in, in a world where there is so much to tempt us away, so much to make this church just seem like a charity. Heavenly Father, we realize we're not a club, but we are the body of Christ, and you will do everything to uphold your name and for those who are willing to follow you who are in it. So we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to sing a song which, it's, it's, it's a personal song. It says, purify my heart. But as we sing it, just, just re- remember that we ask God to purify my heart for the sake of others, that we may have a pure heart so we may be able to win others and woo others. Let's, sing, let's stand to sing.